Hi, everyone. It's me, Joe, and I can't believe we're already on episode 11 of Money Baggage. This show was incredible, and I really hope that we get a season two. In order to help with that initiative, can you please send me an email, joe at joannafranco.com. That's J-O at J-O-A-N-N-A-F-R-A-N-C-O.com. And let me know what you think of the show and what you'd like to see if there is a season two. Or if you're more of a social media creature, please send me a DM on Instagram at Joe underscore Franco. That's at J-O underscore F-R-A-N-C-O. And shoot me a message. Tell me what your favorite episode was. Tell me what you learned. And tell me why you want the show to keep going. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We have a treat, a special guest who I get to sit down with for an hour, which is a big deal because this man is very important. He is going to be giving you mentorship that you didn't know you needed. I hope I do him justice when reading his bio. So here we go. The guest on today's episode is called Gurinder Alawalia. He's currently the lead director of the Hightower Board of Directors. So he is the director of the directors and is also the vice chair of Inspire X Board of Directors. Gurinder has over 25 years at being a boss, to be quite honest. He has built businesses, fixed them, grown them, all in the spaces of wealth management, asset management, and financial technologies. In short, this guy is very smart. He has a lot to say, but what I love most about this podcast is that, yes, we talk about career, but we talk about it on a human level, and using what we have, the things that are innately us, be it curiosity, tenacity, or anything that is considered a soft skill as leverage to get us to where we really want to go and design our dream life. This episode is all about investing in yourself and in your partnerships so you can accomplish much more than what you could have done alone. It's going to be a good one. Y'all ready? Welcome to Money Baggage, a financial literacy podcast brought to you by Hightower Advisors to spread knowledge about something that affects us all, money. We're your hosts, Joe Franco, and Zave is not with us today, but he will be back next week. And we're on an investigation to learn how to strategically deal with our money baggage. We'll cover everything from debt to savings, credit cards, self-investments, and how we can all grow our money mindsets. Our mission is to help move this next generation forward when it comes to financial independence, knowledge is wealth. So it's time to unpack this money baggage. Gurinder, I'm so stoked to talk to you because... When we spoke, first of all, you come with a very big title. You're a very important guy. When we spoke in person, I was like a little fangirl. I'm like, damn, this guy is the real deal. Meanwhile, you're the most personable guy. You were eating, I think, like a slider or something, just like having a casual chat with me as if you're not the director of the board of directors of one of the wealth management companies in the States. Hi. How are you? Nice to see you, Joe. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm really good. I'm really good. Yeah. Okay. For starters, I just want to say thank you for coming out to my show because it's an honor to get to pick the brain of someone who has done many, many things. But beyond all of that, someone who is similar to me in the sense that like, we are not what you think of visually and culturally when you consider the role. So can you just give a little bit of backstory and explain who you are, what your role is, and for all of the listeners out there, what is the differentiator? Who are you in your world and why are you making waves? Because you are making some waves. Okay. Well, who am I and what's my role? I am a, a husband, a father, and a professional, right? And I think you're asking about in the professional aspect, there are a few different things. I'm on a couple of boards. One is a company that I helped 
THL go after, and we have grown it, invested in it, and I continue to work with them on it. Uh, it's called Hightower. And then I did a startup with about a handful of other co-founders in the fixed income space, and we built a company from scratch from 2016, and then we merged it in 2021, and I'm on the board of that company as well. It's called Insperix. Prior to that, I was the CEO of a wealth management business called AssetMark, which is now a public company, and I'm not associated with that. And you know, those are the things that I've been involved in, and I do some consulting and other things right now. So, and talk to you. That's kind of important. And just hang out with me on a casual Tuesday afternoon. So, okay, I really loved how your intro was. You're a father and a husband. Family is big to you. And this was one of the biggest things that stuck out to me when we spoke, because you have so much on your plate. I mean, I can't even imagine with my little micro business, how many hours a day, like for me, I feel overwhelmed. So when I speak to someone like you, it gives me hope that when you speak about your life, family values are at the very top of the list. Yeah. Yeah. For me, exactly that. It's about prioritizing what's important and knowing that. And I've had a great partner, a life partner, my wife. She has helped make me who I am, right? To find that balance. Also, just to give you a perspective on a comment you made around you're running a smaller business and it's hard. So can't imagine it as it grows. It actually gets in some ways easier because you have more resources around. It's really about the role one plays, right? I'm not day-to-day in those companies. So you have to remove that idea from it. And so we all have the same number of hours in a day and we all get to choose how we want to use it. I happen to be a little older than you, right? So those experiences are going to let me leverage that and use that in a way that is more mentoring, consulting, call it, if you will, and advise others on ideas and mistakes not to make that I've made and things like that. So you can use your time a little bit more levered probably as you get older. That probably is probably the biggest difference. But I think um, the idea that, oh, if it's a small business, it's smaller problems, that's actually not true. I'm okay. Thank you. I'm relieved. I'm relieved to hear that. It is, I think I'm at the pinnacle of like, okay, I'm about to make the jump to really get more resources under my wings to really fly. But what we're doing is bigger. One of the things that I want to call out. So you sent an email. We were planning this interview and I really wanted to speak about investing and, you know, the financial world that you come from. And your response was you really wanted to dig into being diverse in financial services and growing through that dot, 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 your words, dealing with customers that had never met a guy with a turban. And I love that because you really wanted to talk about the diversity piece being somebody who, you know, it's not like there are several advisors or directors of board of directors that look like you or come from your cultural background and that's become your superpower. Yeah. I mean, I think the, to put context, I mean, that's exactly what I wrote. Put a little bit of context that I didn't, you know, wouldn't put in the email is because for example, at Hightower, there are plenty of great advisors who should talk to you about wealth, right? And we can point you to the right people to do that based on sort of the right sort of personalities and so on. When I think about my career, the good news is there are, you know, you will find Sikhs out there in roles very successfully, you know. I don't think that's the issue. I think for me, it's that journey is unique probably from most people. Again, it's not that special because people have similar stories, but the idea of sharing it really for me is something I'm very comfortable with. And uh, it's kind of fun, right? Because it is what a lot of people have to overcome because those differences are everything from what you majored in in college to your height, your weight, what you look like, your skin color, your hair color, your attitude, how you show up, your optimism or pessimism in life. I mean, all those differences show up 
I don't think I knew that as a kid, right? I knew the difference I felt every day, which was wearing a turban and uh, being called out for it, generally not in a positive, right? As a kid, most other kids are not generally trying to uplift kids who look different, at least when we were growing up in the 70s, I'll call it. So I think that shaped a lot of who I am today. But I do recognize now that there are so many dimensions to the idea of the diversity, right, uh, concept. Yeah. And one thing that you said when we were speaking in person is that it's not just about you, right? Like wearing a turban is symbolic to your culture and who walks with you, be it your family, your ancestors, your cultural values, right? And I think that stuck out to me so beautifully because when we talk about sharing our stories, it's not like the selfish thing. It's really to uplift the population, like it's to uplift everyone. Yeah. I think the conversation we were having, it was at that bar, uh, it was a darts bar, if I recall now. And, uh, the idea was if you talk to my parents and you asked them, you know, about my childhood and for my parents who had certain immigrant parents, you know, my dad's a math professor, certain expectation of what his children should be like, I was probably the devious one. And I think, uh, the comment I made to you is that by wearing a turban, it made me a better person. It kept me from doing things that I probably shouldn't do. I think the idea was, is that for me, it was the visibility of being seen as a Sikh and therefore representing something bigger than this little kid. So I, I, in some ways, that's very lucky to have that in that moment. So there are very big positives to me around being different. You can call that a superpower, that it becomes part of you because that's the positive approach to it, as opposed to viewing it in, in a different light. Yeah. Well, I think it's what you said. It's your attitude about it, right? Like you could have easily gone in a darker direction and been like, oh man, I can't hide from this. You know, I've had those conversations with myself as well of, I can't, no matter how much I shrivel my personality, I can never change how I look on the outside. Like my skin color, my hair, I used to try to straighten it. I think a lot of women of color will try to flatten our, you know, traces of our differences. And then it just a lot of the women that I know who used to straighten their hair, they're just like, you know, we try to fit into something that we would have never fit into. And now we're just embracing who we are. And I think as much in my example of that, it's like the minute I let the curls wild, I started flourishing. And I can only imagine it's similar with a turban. Like the minute you accept it, you're like, this is my crown. Like, this is it. I think it, it depends on the person, right? You know, the reality is there are many Sikhs who can't handle that pressure and capitulate and take off the turban and cut their hair. It's not that it's an irreversible decision, but it's really hard then to go back to changing your identity so that you look different. So it's a personal decision. It's not one that anyone judges on somebody else, but I'm fortunate. I had a community around me, parents, siblings, brothers that were ahead of me, and I always used it to help me fight the better fight or, you know, get energy from it or prove someone wrong because they had a stereotype of me. And so I took that energy to try to prove them wrong. I, I knew no other way. Right. And it was just study better, you know, pursue a career and do the best I could do. Right. And it seems like that grit, which I love that word grit, that grit carries over because you founded several companies and as an entrepreneur, you have to be willing to like stand in your own idea that maybe no one cares about for many years. Can you walk us through your career after, you know, being the kid that was trying to prove people wrong? What happened next? Because you went to NYU for electrical engineering. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so one thing I tell my kids and, you know, I have daughters that are 25 and 22 and it isn't a straight path at all, no matter what, right? At least for me, right? It was not. 
if my kids can take that away, it'll give them a breath, right? To take a beat. Don't stress over the moment. So just to very quickly, I was an electrical engineering guy. It is 1987. I went to grad school. I got a scholarship from Lockheed Martin. I was being paid to go to grad school to pursue a PhD. Literally, I was getting paid money to go to school. And I quit. I quit what? after two, yeah, I quit after two years. I was on the I was on the beaches of Italy, actually in Sicily. I was sitting there and saying, What am I doing? I am not enjoying myself. And I came back, I quit, I took the master's degree and I joined GE in manufacturing. I found that I like to engage with people. That was the observation. When I was doing my thesis, it was simulating code around a physical military application. So it was about how to communicate from a mobile unit to a fixed sort of location and how to have that be highly encrypted, but have a very fast acquisition signal. So very interesting to me actually on the problem, but simulating it via software just didn't get me excited. And I was a kid. I'm always a kid at heart. Even to this day, if you ask my wife, that's probably the biggest problem. I'm just a kid. Uh, I think that's not a, that's a solution in it most cases. On, but yeah, I can see. Yeah. What side of it? Yeah, it depends where you're at on that conversation. So then, you know, I, I was in manufacturing and I loved it. I loved the idea of problem solving, leading groups, ended up having opportunities to do that quickly, but realized that there was so much more to becoming a leader. And I realized that because I'd gone to the plant manager in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and asked him, what does it take to run this place? And he laughed and he said, you know, it takes a lot more than, you know, being an engineer. And I said, how do I get in your seat, but not take 30 years to get there? Right. And again, you know, he's, he, we were friends, right? His name was Frank Waltz and really good guy. You know, that's, I've been lucky that way. My career has had people who saw the work I did and said, this guy is hungry and works hard. How do we lever him up, right? How do we use him to our advantage? Because at the end of the day, it's a business and they just want to get more out of you. And so it was fun. I uh, ended up on GE's audit staff, traveled the world in corporate finance, and then ended up in a GE Capital business in an insurance entity in Philadelphia, Colonial Penn. My first daughter was born there. And then I went to Tokyo for another role in risk. And my second daughter was born there. And then my wife and I and our kids moved to Virginia, was lucky enough to work at a corporate you know, location. So had good exposure to the leadership of the business. And they happened to have a small RIA in LA and we were taking Genworth public. And I flew out to LA to go address this business problem. It was either fix it, shut it or sell it kind of thing. And, um, I went in there and I saw it's a great business and it was just mismanaged. And so I took the responsibility of that and turned it around and bought an entity in Northern Cal and we combined them and the rest is history. And then, you know, I found myself looking for a job in 2014. Things don't always go your way. We, we we had sold the company that became Asset Mark now. You know, I was like, wow, what do I do? So I always knew that as a corporate guy, I always had the energy and desire to go try something on my own, right? So I joined a venture capital-backed company in the Bitcoin space. Uh, did that for six to eight months, but recognized that they were too edgy on compliance. And, you know, while I may look good in a salmon colored turban. I don't think I look good in an orange jumpsuit. So I decided to leave that business because of my concerns around compliance. It was actually founded by two Brazilians, by the way. Oh, not making us look good. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't that. It's was a great idea what they were trying to do. They were trying to democratize this lending platform. But the, when you double click on the issues around moving Bitcoin across state lines and countries, it effectively can become money transmission. And that's a pretty serious topic. So left that, but I learned a ton about, you know, how a startup 
can create a scaled business model in the cloud, which is very different from running asset market the, at the, in the 2012, 2013 timeframe, where we had a 50 person technology team and maintaining the servers was a project in itself. Then went on and founded a, basically the startup that I mentioned earlier, did that from 16 to 21. And that was a blast. We, you know, 3 million in revenue, then seven, then 15, and then we merged it. We needed more capital. And it's just been great. Honestly, and the common thread in all this is just curiosity. I always want to do different things. I like learning and I'm willing to invest in that learning. And I, But I also, the flip side of that is I think I get bored easily. Which is, again, superpower and could be a weakness, the kid at heart complex. Right. Right. So when I speak to somebody who's done a million and one things in their lives, I always find it fascinating that decades of your life can be boiled down into just like a few sound bites. Isn't that crazy to you? Like, do you listen to the crazy life you've lived and had two kids who are now women and maintained a marriage, a partnership? Like, that's a lot. Are you do, are you like stoked for yourself? Because I'm stoked for you. I'm very appreciative and thankful for the life I have. I feel very lucky. Is this the life you thought you would have when you were asking Frank back at the factory? No, I think I thought I would be in manufacturing. I was an, I'm an engineer at heart. I love that side of things. But you know, the big decisions were candidly in 1996, when I was leaving the audit staff, I had to choose, do I go into GE manufacturing businesses, which was half the company. They had everything from lighting, appliances, nuclear, aircraft, power systems, medical systems, right? So there's plenty of choices, GE plastics, all these businesses were there on that side. And then you had GE capital where you have trailer leasing, you have insurance, you have banking, you have consumer lending, lots of different choices there. And we were very lucky coming off the audit staff. At the level I was at, I was able to choose the kinds of business I wanted to interview with. And you stay on payroll until you jump into a business and you do other projects. And so the question I asked myself was, what is it that I want next? And it's funny, you talk about this being a parent played into that because in 1997, I now have a daughter who is going to be born that's why I'm leaving the audit staff and traveling because my wife's pregnant. And the idea was, wow, you can make a lot more money in GE Capital than you do in manufacturing businesses. And it's not harder work. Like I've seen what we do on the manufacturing side. So I said to myself, there's an arbitrage here. Why wouldn't I pick this in the near term? I recognize that it may not be my passion from a work standpoint, but the money's good. So I made that choice. And Fortunately for me, I found interesting problems that you need to solve, even in a services business, I'll call it, right? And so it opened my eyes and uh, it was just a good choice that I made from a financial perspective, right? And look, it all turns out the way it turns out. If the career path didn't take it, you and I wouldn't be having a podcast and I might not have the same responses, right? So there's a lot of God's grace, hard work, and a little luck. That's it. That's all we need in life. And curiosity. I love that you said curiosity because I think that that's been the number one thing to open the door for me too. Like if you don't come from a background where you have that baked in support system, you know, you could have love, you could have that family bond, but support in the sense of like mentorship or, you know, people who have done it before in your circle. If you don't have people who have done what you aspire to do, it's harder to break through those industries. It's harder to like get in the room. For me personally, it's been curiosity. It sounds like it has been for you too. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't know that about myself. I just have heard that from a lot of people who've talked to me. They've told me that that's what I am. Because I always say, you know, I, I can't imagine how I got here, right? I mean, like 
you're so appreciative. And these are people I respect who've known me over the years too. And so when they're telling you that that's what your the thing is that differentiates, you're genuinely curious. They said, you're not asking to ask, you're asking because you actually want to understand how something works. And I can see that about myself. I like to understand how everything works. I mean, again, engineer. I know. Yeah. And it's nice that you were able to find the engineering regardless of if you kind of strayed away from what a standard electrical engineer graduate would do for work. Because engineering is, it's like a way of thinking. It's not necessarily a job title. Correct. Correct. Well said. Very well said. I want to go back to Frank in the factory because he seems to be a really big person that shifted a lot of things for you. When he said that it takes a lot more than you think, what did he mean as far as leadership? Like what are the qualities of leadership that you think people take for granted or aren't aware of as they think about themselves as a leader? Well, I think there's two parts of that. There's one part that precedes Frank that he knew of. So I was running the shop floor in Milwaukee. Uh, It's manufacturing. It's a unionized workforce. And I had three shifts. We were building x-ray, mobile x-ray units. We were building the tables that you go on in a hospital where the machines are running over your head and so on. And I had some MRI responsibilities. And so he saw that I was someone, when you talk about this engineering and change and wanting to create better process and so on, in a union environment, it's tricky to do that. It's doable. And we did it. And what we did is the challenge in a union environment, when you generate productivity, the typical sort of natural fallout is you lay somebody off because you've generated productivity and either you can increase output if you have growth, but if you don't have growth, you capture that productivity by eliminating that full-time equivalent. Obviously, not many union shops are going to get excited by that. So what you do is we did, and you know, it wasn't following some rule or anything, but we said, okay, we generate this productivity. We ended up generating sort of an FTE who could be deployed elsewhere. And this woman that was working on the team, I remember to this day, she had a curiosity to learn engineering. She was a manufacturing lady. That's all she knew how to do. And she wanted to learn the other aspects of the business. And so I said, great, we've generated the productivity. Let's have you go learn that. The company's only going to benefit from this, right? Because if she comes back into manufacturing to do her work, she's going to have a better perspective on what that looks like. So we started doing that, right? And we started creating things like that. Now, you can imagine some people, the old guards in some cases, didn't really like that. You know, I had a lot of HR issues that came up because of that. And um, I got through them because, again, my North Star, my compass is pretty clean and direct and may not say things perfectly, but the intent is always right. And so I kind of laughed the stuff off and we solved it. But they they knew me at that point. So Frank knew me at that point to be this guy who's pushing for change, sort of damn the torpedoes. And so I think that is a big thing first, is that you have to be willing to sort of create value and do something different than just holding a job. If I was just running the factory the way it was already running, Frank would not even engage with me in any meaningful way because there's nothing unique then at that point, right? But he saw here's a a guy who's willing to be a little bit of a shit disturber and put himself at risk to do that for the better outcome, right? So I think that's what got me in the door to have the next conversation, which is where he was saying what I needed to have more of was really a technical 360, meaning you understand manufacturing and process. You don't know product management, corporate finance, marketing, other commercial functions that are very much required to be a business leader. And so his goal was, let's help you get those experiences, right? That's what you need to go do. That may sound boring. Everything I just 
No, no, no. I'm stoked. Well, this is like a uh, an apprentice position type of a vibe, like of a mentor swooping in. The fact that he saw your shit disturbing tendencies in a great way and was like, hey, I want to take this and level it up. I think that speaks volumes of you spending time with me on a call as a way to kind of give back. Like, you know, because that's it's like sharing is caring. 100%. 100%. Like for me, mentoring people right now is is a lot of fun. I can just give people perspectives, right? Back to my point, I'm, you know, at the age I'm at, I'm going to be 58 this summer. There's a lot of sort of mileage under here. And so why not take advantage of that? The good and the bad, right? Made mistakes too. GE at the time had a very good system. So yes, he supported me to go get and pursue other opportunities. So then I had to go hustle and go find those, right? A lot of times what people, and I don't even know what we're supposed to be talking about, but right now I'd say a lot, a lot of times what I find is that people see the outcome and want that thing, but are they willing to do the work to get there? The examples I'll give you is, you know, I told my story about my career, but I didn't tell you that when I'm in Japan and we have our child and the chairman CEO asked me to move back to Virginia, that when I went home, my wife was really sad. She didn't want to leave at that point. We had just been there 18 months. 9-11 had just happened. And we're going to now move to what we thought was the South, Richmond, Virginia. Wasn't exactly exciting, but we embraced it. We went and took the chance. Not everybody's willing to do that, right? And then, you know, I was told to go to LA. I wasn't told to buy a house. I was told, go stay in a hotel, don't move your family. Let's see what we should do. And I took the risk and bought a house and moved. But you're you're doing these things without a safety net sometimes. And I'm not saying that's a smart thing to do. I mean, candidly, from a financial perspective, it's 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 probably not. I just believed in myself enough at that point at that point, right? So I think earlier in your career, you probably want to make sure you're learning from people and investing in yourself, which is critical. You know, we talk about money matters. When you're young, what's your biggest asset? It's you. How are you investing in yourself? You know, yeah, you shouldn't waste money on Starbucks and all these other things that you shouldn't do, but really, how are you spending your time? Yeah, I'm nodding like a bobblehead because I am vibing. You're like, I don't know what we're supposed to be talking about. And I'm like, this is what we're supposed to be talking about. I think the common misconception when you meet somebody who's successful is, yeah, I want that. I want what they have. But how many tough decisions have you had to make? How many risks have you had to take? How many times were you know your thoughts just clouded? What I'm shocked by and always impressed by is people with families who have to take these risks because I'm single. You know, I have no no kids, so I can make those crazy decisions. But it's to me, what is impressive is that it's not just you making the decision. It, and since we met, the day that we met, you talked about your wife being such a partner in all of the decisions you've made. Has that been part of the secret sauce of like, you know, we're in it together? 100%. My daughter just got married and literally I told her the biggest decision you're going to make is picking this guy in your life. And fortunately, I think she picked a really good guy. So life is good. But for me, my 31 years, my life partner, even just yesterday, literally, she came back from a hike and she was laying on the couch. And I just looked, I told her, I said, I just looked at you and I was like, wow, I am so lucky. And I think it's that realization that you have a partner. And that's the word you used. And I love that word because that is what it is. If it's a real partnership, she's never made me wrong for the eight moves we've made in our 31 years. And we haven't moved in 14 years. So that means we did seven moves in the first 17 years of our marriage. 
And she never made me wrong for that. She never made me wrong for having to work late or travel for work. Those things are huge, right? Because if you're carrying guilt around that in your work, then you get upset and frustrated and you feel like you're trading off something. And I think today's world is a lot more enlightened around finding that balance. When I was young, I didn't have that balance. It was work, work, work. And I, I think everybody's different, right? Like, you know, my wife and our first daughter was born in Philadelphia, November 17. I think by November 21, I was back in the office, but I didn't feel bad. My wife didn't feel bad. Her mom had come up from DC and I was living eight minutes from my work. I was home and I was used to traveling like from a career perspective. So it was amazing, right? We were able to be together. So I didn't need somebody else defining what right looks for us. We figured out what was right for us. In today's world, my daughter, my 25-year-old, you, know, you can imagine what she says about that story, right? She is not okay with that story, right? Like I was failing her mom by doing that, right? But I think it's between the two partners, right? Have to figure out what's right for them. And my wife knew, I think, better than I did about my own career aspirations and my hunger. And that was a trade-off she was willing to let me make in that moment, now, there are times where she'll tell me to get engaged, like, hey, you got to show up. Don't go in your study. Like, come out. The kids are here. And, you know, you got to show up. So. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you talk about investing in yourself, which is the whole topic of this conversation. But I think the people you choose to have in your life, especially life partners, it's the second most important investment you will make because you're investing in the unit, which then will maybe grow a family or even if there aren't any kids, you're investing in that unit of like joining the families and what that carries. And when it comes to having a successful career, the people that I've met who have these relationships that have carried them through there, like that's been the most important asset of my success. And it's inspiring to say the least. Yeah. I mean, it again, it's, it's God's grace, right? You don't know when you pick a partner like if we go back and, you know, if I told you how my wife and I met, I mean, you'd fall out of your chair. So if we go back to when I'm 27 and she's 23 and we're deciding to get married, you don't really know what's going to happen, right? The evolution of life. And so how do you explain that other than being thoughtful with each other and growing together, which is, is really what I think we did, right? And we got lucky that we grew together as opposed to growing apart or just growing independently. Yeah. Now, I want to zoom in a little further for anybody listening who's like, I, I love this out of that. I want to invest in myself. Can you break down some of the things that you actually did or some of the thoughts that crossed through your mind when you realized like, I got to take some action here because I know I want to get to the Frank position or even further, but it's time for me to take action. What were those actions? Yeah. So when I was younger, I wanted to be the CEO, right? Like I wanted to have, I wanted to be a CEO of a business. And so that goes back to this conversation, even post Frank, even when I, after I'd learned corporate finance and dropped into a G capital business, people above me, obviously are the ones who are going to make the decision on whether I get that opportunity or not, right? To run a business. And the feedback I would always get is you're smart, you're quick, you need to sort of see these other dimensions of the business. And so I still had more of this growth to do from their perspective. And so you could either fight it or take it. And I think I did a combination of both. I would fight it because I'd say, ah, it's just an excuse from them. But I would also then go on that, you know, I moved to Japan for the company, right? I mean, I liked it because I spoke Japanese at the time and 
had lived there once before when I was single. So it wasn't like I enjoyed that, the idea of going there. And then uh, you also have to then be honest with yourself about what are you willing to do to invest in yourself and how much. So if I fast forward and I'm, I'm mixing stories here, but it's going to make the point. There was a point where I was a CEO of a business, asset market at the time, and I had two kids and I was like, oh, I want to go after these other professional sort of credentials. You know, I had people on my team who had a CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst designation. And that's a pretty intense multi-year, three levels you have to pass. And so, you know, the first level is a year, the second level, hopefully a year, and the third level, one to two years. And I was like, oh, I think I can do this. You know, I'm smart. I'm an engineer and this will keep me busy. I'm interested in learning more. And I got the books and saw them and I was like, oh my God, this is way too much. I am not willing to invest this much time in this. And so I think it's being honest about it. There's a time where you want to invest and there's a time where you want to enjoy my kids. I wanted to spend the time there. I didn't want to do this. Kids were born. I gave up golf, right? So it's all about choosing. So I think, you know, did I invest in myself? Yes. I was lucky. I was with a company that also invested a ton in us. GE back in the day was a great company. And they put me in month courses. We would go to different cities and, and live with uh, other students for a month on payroll. So I think that the thing is you have to find a way to invest in yourself. It can be experiential. Joe, we were talking about the retreats you do. That's investing in yourself. Some people need, need things like that for more self-awareness or self-reflection. There's investing in yourself in the technical sense, which I just gave an example of. And then there's also, you know, I, I heard a talk once that, that we put on for our clients and, um, the guy, I, you know, it, it was great. I won't do the delivery. So basically his point was, you know, we talk about, you know, how to create an improvement plan and your development needs, your weaknesses, whatever you want to call it. He goes, you know, we don't call them weaknesses. We call them development needs. And he goes, and he, and he was using foul language when he spoke, but he basically said, it's all rubbish. He said, why not, if you're good at something, why don't you just do that and stop trying to do the things you're not good at? He goes, when you're on a soccer field, they don't take professional soccer, but say, you know, you're really not a good goalie, but we're going to make you a goalie. And why don't we work on that? Like, that's just not how it works. I think there's a bit of truth in that, but you have to pick when that transition comes. Like I am more, we're here doing this podcast, but I'm more of an introvert, candidly. I don't go seeking out new people. We met Joe because someone actually introduced us. They put us together and said, hey, Joe, meet Gurinder, Gurinder, meet Joe. I probably would not have come up to you on my own. It just wouldn't have happened. And so you have to know that about yourself because that helps then figure out where you can flourish. I don't think I knew that when I was younger. I think I tried to change. I tried to fit in even, you know, and I struggled with that. I'll give you an example of that. Again, this is in the 90s and we're, 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 we're doing this thing on the audit staff. And, you know, you've got these mostly, you know, it's white male and female a little bit. And, you know, a couple of Indians, African-Americans here and there, but whatever, and Asians too, but mostly predominantly. And they were talking about golfing and they're drinking beer and talking golfing. I don't drink and I really don't follow professional golf. So I kind of felt out of place. It happened to be at a Disneyland resort. Uh, we were at a retreat, right? So all of us were hanging out in bars and did a Treasure Island or whatever it was. In fact, I can remember it. And I remember telling my wife, I said, you know, I felt kind of out of place there. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to try to play. And I just didn't. Those are the hard times, right? Where you don't feel like you fit in. We talk about inclusion. Those are examples where you don't feel like you fit in, but you then have to sort of self-reflect of, well, if you want to make that change, you're going to either have to get in there because if you're waiting for the institution to change on its own, 
right? So it's not going to happen. So so that was sort of my own learnings about myself. So how do you invest? Like investing in yourself is a is a is a wide topic that can be everything from like I said the technical to these softer insights as well. I don't know if it's making sense what I'm talking about here. No, it absolutely is. No. Past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my god, I love this. I got to get you journaling next time. You know that's my jam. I do. I do journal, by the way. You know, I was going to ask, how do you become more self-aware? Obviously, you can observe things or speak to your wife, but give us the rundown. How do you become aware of these strengths that you have or of these characteristics that are innately yours so you could put yourself in a position to flourish? Again, I think that quite, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to go back in time a little bit because my current way to get aware is I just talk to my kids. They'll tell me everything wrong with me. So <laughs> it's easy. So have kids I, ask them questions. Got they, it. You don't even have to ask. They're going to volunteer what's right and wrong about you. So um, that part's easy. How do you, what was the question? So how do you know? How did you start learning about you and the differences that you carry? We all carry our differences, but I think it's a special kind of introspection that it takes to understand who you are, how you're changing, and what that means for like the positions and places and people you need to surround yourself with to take yourself to the next level. Yeah. Wow. It's this mushy process of those people that were my peers, you know, that I had a lot of respect for that I knew were going places. You're having that same conversation with them around, what do you think I'm good at? I'm frustrated by this. What do you think of that situation? And when you start hearing it from multiple perspectives, the people you respect, themes can come out, right? And those can be helpful. It's hard to swallow sometimes, but they can be helpful, right? That's so interesting. So wait, you would initiate conversations as like a self-audit in your face yeah, to I people you respect? I hope, yeah, but not like, it's not clinical. You're hanging out with your friends who, you know, these were CFOs of business units and just friends that I'd built over the years and you're talking to them. And I had a mentor who to this day is a friend of mine and you're just having honest conversations, right? They're telling you, you're not as great as you think you are. And here's why. So, you know, sometimes getting that perspective is very useful. And this mentor friend is to this day, we had an hour long chat maybe a week ago and we still go at it, you know? See, so it's having people that you respect challenge you if it makes sense to kind of push you to grow and and to to just expand your horizon maybe what you think you are like you know help you calibrate where you're at you know and how you're showing up part of it is is it's hard to understand how we show up sometimes so many times i am coaching people i was talking to someone yesterday they're really frustrated in their job and they want to quit you know a lot of times it's the phone call for me is now just showing up and asking the questions. Have they really thought that through? I go, it's easy to quit. I go, tell me what you're going to do the day after you quit and why is it going to be better? So I think getting people like that around you is helpful. For me, it was that sounding board, right? I mean, I didn't have it in my family. We didn't have any corporate people in, in my uncles and family, that, that group. So I couldn't really go inside. It was all foreign to them what I was doing. So yeah. So it came in the workplace. I'm just thinking about like anybody out there who's listening, just how do we look for people who inspire us and to create this like informal board of advisors to have that sounding board? Because you don't want to ask everybody for feedback, you know, because everybody got an opinion, but it's really people that you admire to say, hey, I would love some honest feedback about how I show up to you and, and where you think I'm going. That seems to be a really good avenue. That's, that's well said, because I remember, again, if I go back in time, I remember the way I used to think about companies was I'd look at 
And I'd say this to my friends is that I'd look at who's joining and who's leaving. If the people joining are people that you respect, people you're saying good riddance, that's a great environment, right? If it's the opposite, people are joining that you don't care for, and the people who are your friends and you respect are leaving, that's not the culture you want to be part of. So that's the canary in the mind, right? On a real base. So for me, once you have an environment you're okay with, right? And that's the idea. Then you find people inside that you respect. And by the way, if you don't respect anyone inside and it's a place you believe you want to work, then you got to look inside. What's wrong? You know, like, why don't you respect someone else? Are you really that good? I really like this. This is a great way to kind of assess what environments we're in. And this could be translated way bigger than just in the corporate sense. This could be in our friendships, in our, you know, relationships, in our extended network of people. If you're gaining more people that you admire and respect, you're probably going in the right direction. So we have in our community, in in Punjabi, there's this word called Sangat. And Sangat means community. That is the most powerful influence on any of us is the people that we hang with from childhood all the way through. So that's really how you take stock of where you're going is look at the people you're around. That's really going to determine that. It makes me happy because I feel myself getting closer to those goodness based connections. Like even this conversation, you know, this is not like a, let's talk about corporate finance. This is like a good, this is like a life conversation. But I think in your twenties and thirties, the challenge is accepting that transition accepting that change of of friendships or the evolution of friendships because people change, life changes us. People get into different careers, people move away. And it's just like embracing the change of the community. But knowing that if you have that true north, that you're attracting the right things for you and, and the goodness will come regardless. Yeah. And you have to accept that it'll come on a timetable that may not meet your, um, your immediate needs. That's part of the challenge. <clears throat> the phrase I came up with when I was Back when I was struggling, or you know, I would say that it was this insight, which is the arc of life is greater than the horizon we can see. Wow, so you came up with that? Yeah, I googled it to make sure I didn't read it somewhere. It, it's nowhere. Um, Dang, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. It's an engineer. It's an engineer in me, right? And I've given it to people who are in, struggling in the moment on something, and I'm like, look, you you only see as far as you can see. The good news is the journey of life is much bigger than that, right? And those things that turn out to be challenges end up being sort of blessings in many cases, not always, but in many cases, you get to see how it was a blessing later. And the fact that we can see that full cycle within our lifetime is awesome, right? I mean, yeah. It's very helpful. We're back to gratuity. We're back to like, we're very fortunate to be here having this video, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I I am always shocked too. I'm like, wow, I'm 30 now. And I, I used to have this perspective that like my life was over. So I've done many different things in my 10-year career. And to me, you know, you're in your tunnel vision. You're just like, oh my God, like I had to abandon 1 million subscribers on a YouTube channel. My Netflix show is over. What, what's next? Like my career is over. I'm dried up. I'm a raisin. And then I'm like, what? <laughs> like just the perspective when I speak to someone like you, you have founded so many companies, you, you know, you've done so much. It gives me hope to just zoom out. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, and and I think you're giving me a lot more credit around what I've done. I've founded one company and I have uh, turned around a a few businesses. I have built a couple of businesses and grown them. So yes, I've been very lucky in all of those things. And look, we're, we're always our harshest critic when I think about what you're talking about for yourself, Joe. And myself, I think about we're always our own harshest critics. And sometimes you have to give yourself sort of that space and permission to relax. 
you know, I took a trip um, last weekend into Monday, went to Vegas with my son-in-law. Well, I figured, you know, he's in med school and my daughters, you know, they've been married almost a year. And I was like, you know, it'd be good outing for him. And he's not going to get to do this as a med student. I said, let's go to Vegas and we'll race cars there. And, um, <laughs> and so on Sunday, I was getting ready for the flight. So we do a dinner the night before, right? And, I, and, and then the next day, do this racing thing and then fly it back out. And I was telling my wife, I go, you know, I, have, I feel guilty getting on this plane. And I go, it's weird because I never travel for my own fun. I've traveled for work, obviously, a lot. I travel with family. I travel for family. I've never said, oh, this is for me. I'm going to go on my trip. And she goes, oh, no, you're going with your son-in-law to you know, build time with him. I go, it's true. You're right. I go, but well, it's just a fun... And this, it, it's nothing to feel like... I wasn't trying to do anything with this feeling. It was just a feeling I was having. And I said, it's just weird. I'm checking into a flight that has no purpose other than to go race cars. I'm like, this is odd. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Like, wow. After all of these years of so many flights, first time just going to race cars. But there is... Yeah, there is a purpose. Bonding is a purpose. And he beat me too. And he'll... He, so in the race. See, yeah, the purpose was to get second place and uh, to make him feel great. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. So what advice would you want your daughters to know, your future grandkids to know about investing in themselves? You know, like we're making this episode, it's going to live for as long as the internet is alive. What piece of investing in the self advice would you want people you care for deeply to know? If I was talking to my 22-year-old daughter, which, which is what I would say to her, and I do say to her is, look, knowing what I know now, absolutely pursue your passion. She's into fashion and design. That's what she wants to do. Now, there's no one in our family who does that. And so she's charting her own course. She's got to go hustle and figure this out herself. And the idea that she knows she needs to make money, but she's okay if it's not optimizing that. She wants to enjoy the work she's doing. I tell her, it's awesome. I go, you have a level of maturity around what you're pursuing. I go, but you have to remember that, that you're not pursuing the money then, because you can't let that then be the unhappiness driver if you were getting joy out of your work, right? So you got to figure out what's important to you. I told you for me, it was going out and making an economic outcome for myself was important. And I was willing to forego some curiosity on manufacturing side or whatever it was. So in her case, I just say, just make sure you're comfortable with that and keep reminding yourself of what you want and go after that thing. And by the way, that will change with time. It will change with time. As you have a family, as you have life experiences, what she wants will change. So I think it's being honest with yourself and how much are you willing to put into it? Just make sure those are calibrated. Yeah. So it really is that whole concept of when you invest, there's an opportunity cost there always is. Like if you're pouring yourself into fashion because you love it, that means that you're not going to be spending time making money elsewhere. That's the opportunity cost for this thing that you love. And I think the the hard part, again, this is a generalization. So the hard part is the oppor- thing you said, opportunity cost. What are you willing to give up so that you spend more time in this example, the fashion we were saying, what are you willing to give up so you spend more time on fashion? Are you willing to give up a trip to the beach? Are you willing to lose that weekend of fun? Those are the things that are, you know, someone has to be honest with themselves. Because if you say no, again, I don't think that's wrong, but just understand then that you're not investing in yourself. You're monetizing your current situation. You happen to be near a beach, so you're monetizing that by going to the beach. 
versus investing in yourself. And then just understand that that can have implications over time, right? And not not one time, not one day at the beach, not whatever, but it's a mindset, right? And if you want to differentiate yourself in the workplace, how is someone going to make that other than by seeing how fast you're accelerating, how much you're learning, right? Absolutely. Wow. Listen, I'm revved up. I'm going to make a list of everything I'm willing to give up, all the things I'm investing in. It is a list that is a working document we revise with time. Well, I I hope this has even a morsel of value to your listeners or to yourself or wherever it's going to go. But for me, I don't even know. I feel like an hour's gone by and I don't even know what we talked about. And that scares me a little bit. Why? I think it was great. Okay. Just, I just hope it's not rambling, right? Like literally. No, no, no. It's absolutely perfect because I think that's the truth of it. Like you just basically gave us what we need to know is that we go on these roads of success and we, we get the things, but there's always this deeper value in all of it. For you, it was family. For you, it will always be family. It will always be partnership. It will always be economic resources to uplift the family, right? Like that's really from my analysis of this hour long chat. It's like, have your true north. And know what's worth it to sacrifice to get that thing you're after. Well, I look forward to connecting with you when you either come out west to California or when I come back east. Yes. Okay, I'm going to stop recording. Thank you so much. Hold on one second. This podcast is a simulation and is for educational purposes only. Joe Franco is presenting the information in this podcast in her capacity as a consultant to Hightower Holding LLC and its affiliates and subsidiaries and not as an actual client of Hightower Advisors LLC. The material provided in this podcast is prepared and researched by its author and does not service as an endorsement or a reflection of the views of Hightower Holding LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower does not make any representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of the information contained herein. Hightower Advisors LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC member FNIRA SIPC.